Good afternoon. It is a blessing and a joy to be here. Uh, it has been good this past week to, to be with uh, some physical family uh, and to be reminded of all the, the physical blessings that we're thankful for. Uh, but it is good today to be with spiritual family uh, and not just to, to feast our, our stomachs, but to feast upon God's word, to feast our, our souls. And that's what we hope to do. Um, God's word is able to nourish us. It's able to build us up. It's able to help us be who he wants us to be. And so we want our focus today to be on, on God's words uh, to nourish our souls. If your Bibles aren't already open in Romans chapter 8, I ask that you'll turn them there now. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be focusing on this passage we just read in verse 28 through 30. Um, Paul gives us a, a pretty easy sermon outline here. Uh, it gives us five, five points, uh, five words, uh, as he describes the eternal purpose of God. Uh, there in verse 29 and 30, after describing how God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he says in verse 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so to be the firstborn of Firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. There, there are five words. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And we see here in this passage uh, that God's plan of salvation was eternal in the past, uh, that it was according to his foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew. Uh, we also see the idea of it being in the, the future as well, talking about those whom he glorified uh, and the glory to come in us. And from beginning to end, this is the work of God. He causes all things to work together for good. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Uh, but as we look at this passage and we see Paul emphasizing the grace of God, and the sovereignty of God. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know myself in the past, looking at this passage, I've looked at it and said, well, Paul, that, that sounds just a little bit Calvinistic. You might want to be careful there with how you phrase this. And yet, these are the words of Almighty God. <laughs> and God sees fit to emphasize His sovereignty and emphasize His work in salvation, His grace, uh, and so if this challenges our perspective, maybe it needs to be challenged. Maybe we need not to be so hesitant because of the religious error that some of the world has, has gone into to uh, feel that every time we emphasize the grace of God and every time we emphasize the sovereignty of God, that we immediately need to clarify it. Um, now, unfortunately, because of the religious climate in which we live, because many uh, do... Uh, teach things about the idea of predestination that would not be consistent with the scripture, uh, at times we do need to clarify. Um, but we need not to let that hold us back from emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes. And so what I hope for us to do today in looking at this passage uh, is, first of all, to, to clarify what we're talking about here, to define some of our terms and navigate through some of the religious error that might be associated uh, with these words and ideas that... Um, have come out uh, of these words. But after we kind of navigate through some of that, I, I hope the conclusion of what we can look at today is to emphasize God's grace and to emphasize God's sovereignty uh, the way that the Bible does. To emphasize that salvation is 100% 
by God's grace. It is the work of God from beginning to end. So let's start with this idea of those whom God foreknew. What, what is that talking about? Well, the word foreknew in the Greek is prognosko. Uh, pro is, is a word that means but before. Gnosko is the word for knowledge. So to know beforehand, to foresee, this is actually where we got our English word prognosis, uh, to, to know beforehand. Uh, and it's not always used in the scripture with a divine or miraculous sense of foresight. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, uh, Paul before Agrippa uh, says of the Jews, uh, they have known about me for a long time. There he uses this word prognosco or prognosis. They, they knew about me in the past already. Second uh, Peter 3 and verse 17, talking about the, the religious error that Peter is telling them uh, is going to come into the church. He says, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Uh, and so here, knowing beforehand is really the, the basis of the idea of this word. However, when it's used in application to God, very often it does mean a, a miraculous, a divine foresight and insight uh, of a being who is outside the realm of space and time and is able to look on history uh, from without to able to see the past, the present, and the future with equal clarity. And we see this throughout the scriptures taught to us about God, that God can see the future as, he sees, as we see the past. Look in Jeremiah chapter 1, and if you want to mark your Bibles at Romans chapter 8, that will be helpful. Uh, but turn to, to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Notice what God said to Jeremiah as he was commissioned to be a prophet. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, how, did, how could God choose Jeremiah to be his prophet before he was even formed, before he was even conceived, before he was even born? Well, God knew him. And on that basis of God's knowledge of who Jeremiah was, who he was going to be, the choices that he would make, the type of character that he would develop, God consecrated him and God appointed him as a prophet to the nations. Uh, God could know that he was going to be a faithful messenger because God has uh, the ability to see uh, into the future. You know, was God just looking at what he knew of the environmental influences and the parents that Jeremiah was going to have and just banking on the fact that Jeremiah would develop into a faithful prophet? I don't think that's what we see. It's not that, that God foreguessed that Jeremiah was going to be a good prophet. Uh, God foreknew. He knew him in the womb. He could foresee the character that he would choose and that he would develop within his life. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see God uh, foreknowing Samson before he was born and the role that he would fulfill. God foreknowing John the Baptist. God foreknowing Jacob and Esau. God foreknowing Paul. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul says that God set him apart even from his mother's womb, just like Jeremiah. But I think what we need to recognize here 
is that uh, God did not foreknow because he appointed and because he consecrated Jeremiah. God consecrated and appointed Jeremiah because he foreknew. Uh, And so foreknowledge is the, the first step to understanding. Understanding foreknowledge is the first step to understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about God's predestination. John chapter 6 and verse 64. John 6 verse 64. uh, Jesus here uh, is said about him, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him before Judas knew himself. Jesus, in his divine insight, knew the choice that Judas would make in his free will um, to betray him. And so I think we need, before we can understand God's predestination, before we can understand the eternal purpose of God, we need to understand that God is being outside of space and time and can see the future in the same way that we are able to see in the past, that we are able to see the present. And as we said, part of our purpose is to clarify here. We need to recognize there is a difference between foreknowledge and foreordaining something. Uh, I I think sometimes we get the idea that God foreknows something because he foreordained it. In most cases within the scripture, foreknowledge precedes foreordination. Foreknowledge here is, is before predestination. God appointed Jeremiah because he foreknew him, uh, not the other way around. Uh, And so, just because God foreknew certain ones would choose to obey or disobey him does not mean he chose it for them. Foresight does not in any way overrule or necessarily overrule free will. Uh, This doesn't mean that God arbitrarily chose for us uh, some that would respond to the gospel and some that wouldn't, some that would be saved and some that wouldn't, that God unconditionally picked certain people to be saved and certain people to be lost. This just means that he knows who will, in their own free will that he has given them, choose to respond and who will not. Uh, because First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 tells us that God uh, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If God chose certain people to be saved and chose certain people to be lost, how many people do you think you would choose to be saved? All people. Uh, Matthew 23 and verse 37, when, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, do you remember what he says? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God desired to save his people, Jerusalem. But time after time, they were not willing. And so just because we affirm that God foreknew who Jeremiah was going to be, what type of character that he was going to be a faithful prophet, just because we affirm that God foreknew uh, Paul and, and his eventual response to the gospel, does not mean that we're saying that God chose it for them. Uh, God gives us free will, and his knowledge of how we're going to use that free will does not mean that he necessarily has foreordained foreordained us to make those choices. Um, The reason 
there are many on the Broadway that leads to destruction. It's not because God put them there. It's because we have put ourselves there. But you might say, but if God knows the future, doesn't that mean it's set in stone? You know, God knows what I'm going to choose. Can I, can I change it? The amazing thing about a God that exists outside of the realm and space and time is that it doesn't have to be set in stone for him to know what it is. Even though the, the path that our life takes is contingent upon the free will that he's given us, even though there are many different variables, both within and without, that may determine the direction that our life goes, even though it, it is so uh, fluid and moldable and variable, God in his foreknowledge can know the path that it will take. God can see the path that our life will take as clearly as he can see our lives in the present. Um, and just as I can uh, observe you doing something without choosing to act in any way to, to make you do it or to cause you to do it in the present, God can observe us doing something in the future without saying that, that he was the one that caused it. Um, this does not uh, violate the concept of free will within the scriptures. But here in Romans chapter 8, having clarified that, let, let's get back to our point. Here he says, those whom he foreknew. How many people did God foreknow? Well, on a very basic level, God foreknows all of us, right? God foreknew Judas just like he foreknew Paul and Jeremiah. But here in this passage, what we're specifically talking about is not just a knowledge of the choices that we're going to make. Many times throughout the scripture, the idea of knowing uh, emphasizes the idea of relationship. For instance, Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 7 and verse 23 when Jesus uh, responds to the people saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There, he's saying, I never had a relationship with you. I think in the context of Romans 8, what he's talking about, those whom he foreknew, is those whom he, in his foreknowledge, uh, would knew would have the type of hearts to accept his invitation and to develop a relationship with him. And so here in this context, we're specifically talking about those whom God in his foreknowledge would later predestine, uh, call, justify, and glorify. Uh, and so we're, we're narrowing in on, on that group of people, uh, those who God in his foreknowledge knew would respond to the gospel, would have the type of heart uh, to uh, accept his grace and respond to it. So those whom he foreknew, he then predestined. Uh, this is another Greek word that starts with pro beforehand, uh, or, or pra orizo. Uh, orizo is where we get our word horizon, uh, a limit, uh, a boundary. And so literally Vine says to, to limit in advance or to predetermine. And so someone might say, well, okay, so maybe the word foreknowledge doesn't mean that God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. But doesn't that, isn't that what this word means? He predetermined. He foreordained. Well, there's a reason that God's foreknowledge precedes his foreordination. And if you remember when we studied at the beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, Remember, he's writing to those who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, right? And so God's foreknowledge is the basis for his predestination. Just as glorification is based on justification, 
predestination is based on foreknowledge. And so God, foreknowing those who would respond, predestined that group of people to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God, in his foreknowledge, um, picked out those who would have good and honest hearts to obey the gospel. And he predetermined, he foreordained that they would be saved by being conformed to the image of his son. We're not talking about here God, you know, having some uh, production where he is taking each of us as puppets on strings. We're talking about God having a master plan in which he has weaved our own free will into the masterpiece of his eternal purpose. And so God, in his great knowledge and his great wisdom, uh, is able to give us that free will and still accomplish his purpose. We see that God, in his perfect power and wisdom, used our free will to accomplish his eternal plan. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Here, as they're praying to God, they quote from Psalm 2. Uh, here, uh, a, a prophecy that God, in his foreknowledge, stated about the Christ and about the world's reaction to him. And they say then in verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Why why is it that Jesus died on the cross? Well, God, in his eternal plan, predestined that that would be the case. And in a sense, this was the doing of, of his hand. Now, does that mean that, that Herod and Pilate were just kind of puppets on a string and they had no will in the matter whatsoever and that God caused them to do these evil things? Or that God caused Judas to do the evil things and betraying him? Well, no. Who, who was it that entered into Judas's heart? It wasn't God. It was Satan. And yet, God used their choices to accomplish his purpose. And ultimately, we can say that it was his hand and his purpose at work in this. But, but look back in chapter 2, in verse 23. Again, we see the same idea. But Peter, as he's preaching to the Jews here, says in verse 23, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. We saw it was God's hand in chapter 4, but here, whose hand? Well, it was, it was their hands at work as well. And they were godless men. They made godless choices in the way they chose to treat Jesus. Was God the one shouting through their mouth, crucify him, crucify him? Well, no, they in their own hearts, in their own disobedience, chose to do those things. And they were accountable to it. Later on, Peter tells them to repent of those things. And yet God, in his foreknowledge, in his wisdom, weaved their own godless choices into his master plan of salvation. And so we need to make a distinction um, between those things that are according to God's purpose, uh, his purposive will, and his precepts 
We need to make a distinction between the purposes of God's will and the precepts of God's will. The purpose of God's will is set in stone. And it will come to pass. It cannot be thwarted. We see this concept throughout the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want to accomplish. God's will is going to be accomplished. His purpose will come to pass. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 we read, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Here, God's plan of salvation was going to come to pass. When God determines that he is going to accomplish something, nothing man does can help or hinder that purpose, ultimately. Because no choice of man is ever going to blindside God. He can weave our choices to accomplish any purpose he decides. And so here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. However, when we talk about the purpose of God's will, that's something different than the precepts of God's will. Look at some other passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 talks about the will of God. Of God, but notice a slightly different angle on the idea of the will of God. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, we read, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here, God's will is his moral will for the choices that we make and how we use our free will. That God wants us to live sanctified lives. God wants us to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, is that the same as his purpose that is going to be accomplished no matter what? Well, no. Here, God's will is talked about in what he desires for us to choose, and yet he's giving that, us that freedom to choose. Later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 18, it says, And everything gives thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is that we might give thanks in all things. And yet, can we thwart that in my own life? I, I can choose not to give thanks. I can choose not to live a sanctified life. And so sometimes when the Bible talks about God's will, we're talking about his purpose, his predetermined plan. He's going to weave our choices into accomplishing this plan no matter what. We can't thwart it. But then sometimes the Bible talks about God's will as far as what he desires for us to choose. When, when Pilate... Um, washed his hands of the situation and condemned Jesus to be crucified? When, when the people shouted, crucify him, crucify him, was that according to the purpose of God's will? Yes. Yes, God was going to accomplish his purpose, even through the evil choices of men. Was that according to the precepts of God's will? No. God does not condone murder. God does not condone hate. And so I think we can see that when we talk about the predestination of God, um, there are certain things that, that God has foreordained are going to come to pass, and he is weaving our own free, free will, our choices into that. Those who accept his grace are going to be weaved into a certain place in that tapestry, and those who do not are going to be weaved into another place. Um, but his predetermined plan uh, is that those who he foreknew would have the good soil. Uh, would then be conformed to the image of son, of his son. 
So God predestined or purposed that those foreknown would be saved through the sacrifice of his son. They would become his children by dying to self and putting on Christ. And so those whom he foreknew, he then predestined to be saved. And to accomplish that, he then called. And there is certainly a sense in which God has called all men by the gospel. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has been called by the gospel? Well, the gospel was intended to be preached to all creatures, to all men. God told, uh, Jesus told his apostles to go out into all the world to preach the gospel to all creation. Titus 2 and verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So there's a sense in which God's call has been sent out far and wide to, to every human being. God's invitation of grace has been extended to all men. But not all who are called by the gospel will accept God's invitation. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells uh, a parable about a wedding feast. And he sends out, and an, the master sends out an initial uh, invitation, and there are many who reject it. And so he sends it out even broader. Far and wide, anybody in the streets, everybody is welcome to this wedding feast. But then towards the end of that parable, we see somebody comes in and he's not wearing wedding attire. And he's cast out from the feast. And the, the parable concludes in Matthew 22, verse 14, saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. So here the call of God, in one sense, has gone out far beyond those who are predestined, those who are going to be justified and glorified. God's call has gone out to, to all, but few are chosen. And Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 that we'll study here in a few weeks in our Sunday uh, class. We're told, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. We, there are choices that we make that are going to affect whether or not we, we have heeded his call and whether or not we are chosen. Um, whether or not God's invitation of grace is truly received and implemented in our lives. And yet, in the context of Romans 8, God called the foreknown and the predestined in a special sense. Because here in Romans 8, we're not just talking about his call going out to all the world. We're talking about those whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, he called. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, Jesus makes the statement, I did not come to call righteous, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What, what is he saying by that? Is he saying, you know, well, sorry, I didn't come to call you. I, I just came to call these people. Well, no, in the, in the context there, he, he came to call those who recognize themselves as sinful. His call is going to appeal to a certain type of heart. And the parable of the sower, um, when the sower sows the seed, he throws that seed on all types of soil, right? But the seed is designed to only penetrate and germinate and, and thrive and grow and bear fruit in a certain type of soil. And so there's a sense in which the call 
is specifically designed for those who recognize their sinfulness. Who those who have the good and honest heart that are going to respond to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. I apologize that we're going through some of these passages so quickly. I, I hope if you're able to write these down and, and look in the more depth um, so that I don't preach until midnight uh, today. But uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. We're told, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. Consider your calling. Now, what is he saying there? Is God saying, oh, you're mighty. I don't want to have anything to do with you. My call is not for you. Oh, you're noble. This doesn't apply to you. Well, no, what, what Paul is saying there is that the call of the gospel often appealed to those who recognized they didn't have any strength on their own. They didn't have any greatness on their own. Same idea of, of Jesus calling sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. And so the, the call of the gospel appeals to a certain type of heart that God foreknows will respond to it. And so those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he uh, called by the gospel. It was the foreknown and the predestined that the call was designed to reach. And the point here in Romans 8 uh, is that it is God's grace, not our merit, that is behind that call. It's not that God up in heaven looked down and he saw some people that, that were, were really notable and praiseworthy and thought, you know what, I'm going to call them. <laughs> that is the exact opposite of what we see. It's not that, that we somehow deserved God's call. This is the work of God from beginning to end. And I think that's the point in Romans 8, is that he sent out his call to the undeserving. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you'd like to take the time to turn over there, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Here, speaking about the, the power of God in verse 9, it says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. Where did this call come from? It wasn't something that we initiated. God had to call us before we could call on him. And if it was not for God extending his grace to us through the gospel, there is no way that we could ever even begin to restore the relationship. Uh, we cannot initiate our own salvation. We cannot negotiate our own redemption. We cannot mediate our own reconciliation. He is the author of eternal salvation. It is his work from beginning to end. We don't deserve a second thought from our creator, but he was willing to extend us the greatest gift possible in his son. Jesus initiates our redemption. He mediates our reconciliation. And so God foresaw, he planned, he invited, and he accomplished. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified. The word justified means to render just or innocent, to declare a not guilty verdict. 
But we cannot justify ourselves. We need the gift of his righteousness. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Earlier in this same book, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, By the works of law no flesh will be justified in his sight. We couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't begin to do it on our own. Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, we were broken. We had fallen short of the glory that God intended for us to reflect. We deserved a guilty verdict. We deserved to be thrown out. But after saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, in verse 24 it says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification is 100% the work of God, not the work of man. And salvation being conditional, which we would wholeheartedly affirm, does not mean that we have earned one iota, one fraction of our salvation. When you think about the concept of redemption that we see here in Romans 3 verse 24, how is that price paid? That's what the word redeem means, to buy back, to pay the price, to let us out of bondage, out of slavery. Well, Jesus' blood paid that price. And it played the price in full. Jesus paid it all. It's, it's not that Jesus and I kind of go Dutch and I, he pays part and I pay part. No, his blood paid it all. And my response to that does not mean that I, I now earn part of it or some fraction of it. Justification, redemption is 100% paid by Jesus' blood. The idea later on in Romans 3 and verse 25 of propitiation or what we might more commonly think of as atonement. The idea that Jesus not only paid the price, but he also suffered the penalty. He took our place in suffering the consequences of our sin. It's not that we can serve out part of our sentence and then kind of go on parole and with good behavior we, we can get, you know, get out of bondage to sin. No, Jesus took the penalty for us. He, he fully suffered our death. Uh, Jesus alone could take our place. And so when we think about God's plan of salvation, we need to recognize that it, it is his work. It is what he has accomplished. Uh, and he, as we said earlier, Matthew chapter 9, he didn't come to, to call, you know, good-looking hypocrites. He called to call, he come, came to call sinners to repentance. And Luke chapter 18, you remember the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And at the end of that story, it says, this man went home justified. Which one was it that went home justified? Was it the one who thought he was justified on his own? It was the one who recognized that he couldn't begin to be justified, that he didn't deserve the not guilty verdict, that he was a sinner before God and was not even willing to lift his eyes up to heaven. That is the one that God in his grace justified. And so we need to be willing to affirm, to emphatically affirm that salvation is by God's grace, that it is his work. And just because some have taken that to the extreme of saying, well, then there's nothing that I need to do. I, I need to be careful that I don't overreact to that to the point that I start making it sound like I've done some of this. I haven't done one bit of it. I cannot begin to earn the gift of God's grace. But as we said, part of our purpose is to clarify. Uh, 
this does not release us from the responsibility to pursue righteousness in our lives. This does not release us from the responsibility to respond to the gospel. Accepting God's grace means submitting to it, means obeying it. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14, as we talk about in Romans 6 being buried and being raised to walk in newness of life, it goes on to say in verse 12, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Their grace is our master, and we must live in submission to it. He goes on to say in verse 14, You are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. We can't just call Jesus Lord, we need to treat him as Lord. We can't just accept his grace, we must submit to his grace and obey his grace, respond to his grace. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7 states it in no uncertain terms. God here says, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. I can't say, well, okay, if God paid 100% for it, then that means I don't have to do anything. No, John says, if you're not practicing righteousness, you can't claim to be righteous. No, he, he saved you so that you may walk in newness of life. He brought you out of law under grace so that you may live in submission to that grace. And so it is important that we do clarify that. Uh, We don't misunderstand God's grace. Uh, And yet we need to affirm it and emphasize it the way that the scripture does. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now it's interesting here, he uses the past tense, the aorist in the Greek. He doesn't say, and those whom he justified, he will glorify. He says, he glorified. And this is what some uh, scholars call the proliptic or futuristic aorist, which basically he's using the past tense to tell us it's as sure as done. I think in the context here, we are talking about the future glory. We we are talking about the, the promise of glory that God has given us to share in the glory of Christ. Back in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, earlier in this same passage, he talked about glory. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And yet here, later on in Romans 8, I think he's saying it's as good as done. The, the, the place in heaven is prepared. The, the crown is ready. Uh, the, the victory has been won. We're, the, the glory is there. And we're just waiting to take part in it. God has already accomplished it. Jesus is ready to receive us unto himself. And this glory that we receive is really not our own glory. This is sharing in the glory of Christ. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, we're told, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. It's not that, that we serve God so that in the end, we can be glorified and everybody can be looking at us. <laughs> that, that's not what we're talking about here. When we talk about glory, we're talking about sharing in the victory of Christ. Sharing in the glory that, that he rightly deserves. And that we, 
by God's grace, are, are able to, to share in. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. We're told, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. God predestined not just that our character would be conformed to the image of His Son in this life, but that in eternity, our our body would be conformed to the image of His Son. That we would share in the glory of His glorious body. And so as in this life, God is transforming us through sanctification, is helping us to, to form the character and the glory of Christ to reflect His image once again. In eternity, that will be accomplished in its fullness. We'll be able to share in all the fullness of God's glory. Truly, we can say, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What a glorious hope we have been offered. Do you want to share in the glory of Christ? Are you willing to be conformed to the image of his son? God has given us free will. And we have to choose. We have to respond. We can't just accept his grace. We must respond to his grace. We must be obedient to his grace. We can't just call Jesus Lord. We need to treat him as Lord. Is Jesus Lord in your life? Are you living out the image of his son from day to day? If you recognize in some way this afternoon that there's a change that needs to take place, that you need to repent, maybe you need to confess sins before these brethren, ask for the prayers of brethren here, maybe you've never committed your life to the Lord. By God's grace, you can bury the old man of sin. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. You can be one of God's chosen people, responding to the call of the gospel, being justified, declared not guilty, and having a hope of glorification for eternity in his presence. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, that's why we're here. If you need to to make your need known at this time, we ask that you'll do that as we sing.